Hey, everybody, welcome back to Go Help Yourself, a comedy self help podcast to make life suck less. I am Misty Stinnett, and sitting across from me, not really sitting across from me, but beaming up to a satellite and then coming back down to my computer <laughs> is Lisa Linky. And this is the self-help podcast where we read and review a popular self-help book each week on our big badass Friday episodes. But today, today, alas, is a Tuesday episode. It's what we lovingly refer to as the weekly beef, which Spoiler alert for those who don't know, it started as us calling it the Weefly, Weefly Beak Wellington. You're welcome. Thank you. The weekly Thank you. Beak. The Weefly Beak. <laughs> Weefly Beak. Weefly Beak. It makes me so uncomfortable. Weefly Beak. Anyway, you get it. <laughs> I'm upset. So listen, we do not review a popular self-help book on the weekly beef episodes. Oh, no, 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 no. This is supplemental material. This is to explore the deep, dark crevices of this self-help oh, world. It is. Oh, oh, sometimes God. we do explore things and go, oh, God. Because who knew? Who knew what's out there? So all we're saying is we are honored that you are entrusting us us. We are honored that you are entrusting oh, us. God, I know. Listen, oh God, I can't anymore. To be your guides, we're forging ahead on the path with the machetes, trying to clear the way so that it's an yeah. easier journey for all of you. So, thank you for being here. And if you want a self-help book review, every other episode is that. Thank you so much. Uh, so without, <laughs> you're welcome. Without further ado, Lisa, you, you have some homework. Yeah. So you assigned me homework to read the boy, the mole, the fox and the bear horse and the uh, it's horse. A bear you, I don't judge. I knew I was saying it wrong when I did. I ordered it. It's on its way to me. It hasn't gotten here yet, so I can't report about it yet, but... Maybe we'll read it to each other, like, just have, like, a, a FaceTime story time. I would love that. If you want to see me cry, join us. Maybe we'll do, like, a an Instagram <laughs> live. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we'll yeah. let you know. Anyway, so that's very exciting homework update. It's in the mail. Lisa. I love it. What do you have for us? Missy... This week, I'm going to follow up on a book we've previously reviewed and give a different perspective. So right. we're going to talk about white fragility. Okay. But I'm going to do it by reading an article in The Atlantic by John McWhorter. Okay. Um, he's a contributing writer at The Atlantic. He teaches linguistics at Columbia University. He hosts the podcast Lexicon Valley. Amazing name. Oh, wow. And is the author most recently of Words on the Move. He's Brilliant. I love his writing. His stuff is always so smart in the Atlantic and very like erudite. So I often have to look up a word or two. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, but he is writing, um, and the title of this article, of course, will be linked in show notes, is called The Dehumanizing Condescension of White Fragility. Oh. A popular book aims to combat racism, but talks down to black people. Oh, my God. And it was published on July 15 of this year. Oh, wow. So it's a... A little bit of a longer article, so I'm going to kind of like summarize some paragraphs and then get into the real meat of okay. it. He's a black man, and he admits that he hasn't actually, he didn't read 
white fragility until recently. And he saw that like all of the um, bestseller lists, uh, you know, amidst the protests Mm -hmm. following the death of George Floyd and then the ensuing national reckoning on racism. He's like, okay, I've got to read this. So he says, I am not convinced. Rather, I have learned that one of America's favorite advice books of the moment is actually a racist tract. Oh my Despite God. the sincere intentions of its author, the book diminishes black people in the name of dignifying us. This is unintentional, of course, like the racism D'Angelo sees in all whites. Still, the book is pernicious because of the authority that its author has been granted over the way innocent readers think. And I do want to say I had a family book club about white fragility and some other uh, anti-racist books mm. with my family. And while several members of my family loved the book, my aunt in particular felt like she was being kind of talked down to and condescended by Robin D'Angelo. I think it was either the academic nature of it, but she also didn't, she didn't love it. So okay. it was really interesting to hear all the different perspectives. I also have not read this book in full. I only mm-hmm. listened to you presenting it to me. It's on my list of things to read between all of the books that we read for this podcast. Yeah. So I yeah. don't, I can't be an authoritative opinion on this, you know, in this moment. Yeah. So he compares reading the book to like attending a diversity seminar. Okay. Um, he says her chapters are shortish as if each were a 45 minute session and she seeks to instruct. He says she operates from the now familiar concern with white privilege, aware of the unintentional racism ever lurking inside of her that was inculcated from birth by the white supremacy on which America was founded. To atone for this original sin, she is devoted to endlessly exploring, acknowledging, and seeking to undo white's, quote, complicity with an investment in racism. So he says to her, any failure to do this, quote unquote, work as adherents of this paradigm, often put it, renders one racist, which I thought that was interesting. Wait, say that again. So if you're unwilling to do the work, it renders you racist. Yeah. Yep. He says, as such, a major bugbear for D'Angelo is the white American, often of modest education, who makes statements like, I don't see color, or asks questions like, how dare you call me racist? Her assumption is that all people have a racist bias is reasonable since science has demonstrated it. The problem is what she thinks must follow as the result of it. He talks about how she spent a very long time conducting diversity seminars in which whites exposed to her catechism, which is an interesting word to call it. They regularly tell her while crying or yelling or storming towards the exit, which she, which she talks about in the book, that she's insulting them and being reductionist. He says, yet none of this seems to have led her to look inward. Rather, she sees herself as the bearer of an exalted wisdom that these objectors fail to perceive, blinded by their inner racism. She is less a coach than a proselytizer. So, He says, when writers who are this sure of their conviction turn out to make a compelling case, it's genuinely exciting. He said, this sadly is not one of those times, even though white guilt and politesse have apparently distracted many readers from the book's numerous obvious flaws. I do love the way he writes. He says, for one, her book is replete with claims that are either plain wrong or bizarrely disconnected from reality. Exactly who comes away from the saga of Jackie Robinson thinking he was the first black baseball player good enough to compete with the whites? Imagine if instead of the story, she writes, went something like this, Jackie Robinson, the first black man whites allowed to play Major League Baseball. But no one need imagine this scenario, as others have pointed out, because it is something every baseball fan already knows. Later in the book, she insinuates when white women cry upon being called racists, black people are reminded of white women crying as they lied about being raped by black men eons ago. Mm. But how would she know? Where is the evidence for this presumptuous claim? 
He says, an especially weird passage is where D'Angelo breezily decries the American higher education system in which, she says, no one ever talks about racism. Quote, I can get through graduate school without ever discussing racism. I can graduate from law school without ever discussing racism. I can get through a teacher education program without ever discussing racism. End quote. He says, I am mystified that she thinks this laughably antique depiction reflects any period after roughly 1985. For example, an education school curriculum neglecting racism in our times would be about as common as a home unwired for electricity. I don't know if I agree with that. Listen, I went to the University of Central Florida. I attended the Burnett Honors College there. It's a much smaller, harder to get into college within the university. And it's supposed to be where you're really challenged by thought leaders, etc. And I did not learn about systemic racism one goddamn day while I was in that program. And the University of Central Florida is one of the largest universities in the United States. I don't disagree. I think probably since he's a linguist, he, he was probably parse words with you on what racism is. Like you're talking about systemic racism. He does have another article where he argues that the definition of racism needs to be changed. But I think it is, I think his point is true. You would be hard pressed to graduate from graduate school and be unaware that racism exists. Oh, okay. Okay. If that, yes. And by the way, Ijeoma Aluo in her book, So You Want to Talk About Race, which we recently covered, you know, she also likes to use the definition of racism as involving systems of power, right? So like Which any is not the actual definition of Merriam-Webster, although they're trying to change Right, it. right, right, right. Okay. So I think because you learn about the civil rights movement in U.S. history, you are aware of racism. Right. Okay. Now I understand that. Yes, definitely. I'm aware that racism exists and they did, they have spoken about how racism exists, but, right. but not the intricacies of it. Absolutely. So his, he's saying that her depiction of white psychology shapeshifts according to what her dogma requires. So here's how he explains this. On the one hand, she argues in chapter one that white people do not see themselves in racial terms. Therefore, they must be taught by experts like her of their whiteness. But for individuals who harbor so little sense of themselves as a group, the white people whom she describes are oddly tribalists when it suits her narrative. White solidarity, she writes in chapter four, requires both silence about anything that exposes the advantages of the white population and tacit agreement to remain racially united in the protection of white supremacy. But if these people don't even know whiteness is a category, just what are they now suddenly defending? Mm. He's because of his work as a linguist, I think he's really parsing on what the terms she's using. And I don't disagree. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah. He goes on to talk about we must consider what is required to pass muster as a non-fragile white person. Refer to a bad neighborhood and you're using code for black call it a black neighborhood and you're racist. By her logic, you are not to describe such neighborhoods at all, even in your own head. You must not ask black people about their experience or feelings because it isn't their responsibility to educate you. Instead, you must consult books and websites. I do disagree with that a little bit. I think she's more intricate in that she says, you know, it's not the expectation that they re be required to, ed to educate you on it. Mm -hmm. But if you uh, if if they invite you to talk to you uh, to talk about it, then you are, you know, they're welcome to share what they want. Right, right. And again, not having read the book, only having heard your presentation of it, it sounded like don't lean on people of color to be your personal Google, you know, to educate you right. on things that you can look up quite easily. 
Yeah. He says, never mind that upon doing this, you will be accused of holding actual black people at a remove, reading the wrong sources or drawing the wrong lessons from them. You must never cry in black people's presence as you explore racism, not even in sympathy, because then all the attention goes to you instead of black people. If you object to any of the quote feedback that she offers you about your racism, you are engaging in a type of bullying quote, whose function is to obscure racism, protect white dominance and regain white equilibrium. He says that is a pretty strong charge to make against people who, according to her, don't even conceive of their own whiteness. But if you are white, make no mistake, you will never succeed in the quote work she demands of you. It is lifelong and you will die a racist just as you will die a sinner. So it's really interesting. It is really interesting because when he kind of holds up the contradictions like that, it does. I can see how his point of like, you're kind of shutting out people of color from this conversation. And so what if you are missing a lot of extremely valuable points in that? And the crying and sympathy could be a really beautiful thing if you're among friends. So I'm going to read a couple more paragraphs and then I I, I encourage everybody to read it because he is so, he's such a wordsmith that it is tough to hear. Like I really had to reread a couple of these, like you were saying, not following, but. So he says, whites aren't even allowed to say, I don't feel safe. Only black people can say that. If you are white, you are solely to listen to her tar you as morally stained. Now breathe, she counsels, to keep you relaxed as you undergo this. She does stress that she's not dealing with a good-bad dichotomy and that your inner racist does not make you a bad person. But with racism limned, L-I-M-N-E-D, limned, limned, Mm. as such a gruesome spiritual pollution harbored by individuals, moreover, entrapped in a society within which they exert racism merely by getting out of bed, the issue of gray zones seems beside the point. By the end, she has white Americans muzzled, straitjacketed, tied down, and chloroformed for good measure, but for what? He says, and herein is the real problem with white fragility. She does not see fit to address why all of this agonizing soul searching is necessary to forging change. One might just ask how people can be poised for making change when they have been taught that pretty much anything they think or say is racist and thus antithetical to the good. What end does all this self-mortification serve? Impatient with such questions, she insists that, quote, wanting to jump over the hard personal work and get to solutions is a foundation of white fragility. In other words, for her, the whole point is the suffering. And note the scarce quotes around solutions. She uses quotes in that word. Hmm. As if wanting such a thing were somehow ridiculous. A corollary question is why Black people need to be treated the way she assumes we do. The very assumption is deeply consenting to all proud Black people. In my life, racism has affected me now and then at the margins in very occasional social ways, but it has had no effect on my access to societal resources. If anything, it has made them more available to me than have would have been made otherwise. That is probably challenging. Not should anyone dismiss me as a rara avis. I don't know what that is. I think it's a, I think that's Latin. Um, (laughs) Being middle-class, upwardly mobile and black has been quite common during my existence since the mid 1960s. And to deny this is to assert that affirmative action for black people did not work. So he's going to say some things in this article that are very challenging Mm. to white uh, fragility. Mm -hmm. Um, And he says, look, in 2020, as opposed to 1920, I neither want or need anyone to muse on how white privileges them over me. Mm-hmm. Nor do I need wider society to undergo teachings and how to be exquisitely sensitive about my feelings. I see no connection between her brand of re-education and vigorous constructive activism in the real world on issues of import to the Black community. And I cannot imagine that any Black readers would willingly submit themselves to her ideas while considering themselves adults of ordinary self-regard and strength. Few books about race have more 
openly infantilized Black people than this supposedly authoritative tome. Oh my gosh, he is such an amazing writer. He says, in the end, it's a book about how to make certain educated white readers feel better about themselves. Her outlook rests upon a depiction of Black people as endlessly delicate poster children within this self-gratifying fantasy of how white America needs to think, or better, stop thinking. Her answer to white fragility, in other words, entails an elaborate and pitilessly dehumanizing condescension towards Black people. The sad truth is that anyone falling under the sway of this blinkered, self-satisfied, punitive stunt of a primer has been taught by a well-intentioned but tragically misguided pastor how to be racist in a whole new way. Let me tell you. If I could write one sentence like this, man, I would be, I would consider myself like... You made it. I, I would yeah. have, I made it. Yeah. So here's the thing. I don't necessarily agree with that. Hmm. Uh, in that I think that he probably has an experience that is different from a lot of people in this country, white and black, of being upwardly mobile in middle class. Mm-hmm. There's a whole subsection of class that intersects with racism um, that would not maybe understand that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So just as I, as just as I was very, I felt liberated by white fragility to get rid of that good, bad dichotomy, racist or good person. Mm -hmm. This is also, I think an, an important counterpoint, which is of course, no book about anything that is a a societal ill is going to cover everything. Um, Right. But I think he makes some really interesting points, you know, she is talking to a predominantly white audience. Yeah. And in that, she does acknowledge that in her intro, but like in that, how do you not also like kind of remove black indigenous and people of color and kind of, you know, it's, it create it reinforces the problem. So this was really, it was an interesting uh, perspective. No, it's, it's really interesting. It has my, my wheels turning and I definitely want to read it in more detail yeah. and slowly to be able to digest everything that he said. Yes. Yes. Cause having also having not, read the book myself and just hearing your interpretation of it and your summary of it, it came off to me like white people are the delicate, fragile ones that need to, you know, that we need to look at why we always feel the need to be handled with kid gloves. Yeah. We need to get rid of our fragility. Yeah, exactly. So I'm surprised to hear um, that that was a takeaway, you know, that, that she's infantilizing people of color. It does surprise me. And yet it also doesn't. The minute I think about, oh, what would it be like for a man to write a book about feminism? <laughs> I think I would be like, why, why are you telling me about this? Do you know what I mean? Well, Ijeoma Oluo says in her book, So You Want to Talk About Race, that white people need to be talking about this with other white people because then these conversations yes. reach spaces. Yes that maybe a person of color could never actually reach. Like she asks us to do that. So again, I think this just reiterates something that we've realized many times is that there is no perfect way to be an ally. You are going to make some people so proud and excited and feel so buoyed while maybe making a whole, whole other parts of the movement feel annoyed or frustrated or hurt. And I think we have to just keep trying. We have to just keep I agree. acting and learning and getting up and going, oh, fuck, I made a mistake and I really hurt someone. I'm going to apologize to them and I'm going to get right back out there and have another difficult conversation. You know, it's never going to be perfect because there is no right way to have these conversations. There's no perfect way to show up. 
So free yourself of that and keep showing up and just do your best to receive and implement feedback as you go. Right. I, I mean, I guess I love it. I'm kind of waxing poetic here, but I don't know what else to do, but to keep hearing well, I mean, these perspectives. I don't know that there's, and, I think that's also very like, what is the answer? It's a very North American, like capitalist, like what, how do we fix this? Yeah. And I think you're right. Well, with that, <laughs> now that we've morphed everybody's brains with words that none of us understood, uh, I want to thank John McWhorter and I will link to that article. And I'm going to look up the word limbed. Thank you, Limnid. 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 Of course, where's Linda when we need her? Linda would fucking know what that word means. Limnid. Linky. She said it out loud when she listened to this. Thank you. With that, (laughs) life Life is is abundant. Go Help Yourself, a comedy self-help podcast to make life suck less, was produced by Misty Stinnett, Lisa Linky, and Matt Sav. Our theme song was also written by Matt Sav. He's amazing. <laughs> do you want to get in touch? You do. Email us at gohelpyourselfpodcast at gmail.com. And you know you can also find us on the social medias. Instagram at gohelpyourselfpodcast. Twitter at G-H-Y podcast, or check out our website, gohelpyourselfpodcast.com. And if you liked our podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes to help other people discover our show. It's really the least you can do. And why don't you tell all of your friends? Bye! Bye.